Some, we're talking about heroes uh, today, and some heroes uh, will die for others. Um, that has happened quite a bit, especially in war. Uh, people have even jumped on hand grenades or gotten in front of bullets for, for others. Parents have died for children and so on. How many people have died for their enemies? And that, I, I can't personally think of any example besides the one that we worship but <coughs> but even let's say someone did uh, some martyr say a Christian martyr there's a lot of martyrs in the first few centuries how many would leave aside the infinite bliss and power of heaven being God to become a man and die the most miserable, horrid death imaginable. We can't imagine it because it's not just his physical death. It wasn't just his physical torture. But the fact that he would be separated from his father and judged for the sins of the whole world, what we call his spiritual death, is we can't comprehend it. Who would do that? And he would die for the ones who were even killing him, who were mocking him. It made me think, because there's many stories written about similar things, but C.S. Lewis in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and I, I quickly were able to find in, in, the, uh, in this first book of the Chronicles of Narnia, and in this uh, allegorical story, Oslin is a king, uh, who is a lion, sorry, who is a king, he represents Jesus Christ, and he's this massive lion. And the witch, of course, uh, is going to... The witch is able to... Has the right to kill uh, Edward, who is... You know, Oslin is now standing in for. And says, don't... He says to the witch, don't kill him. You can have me. And that's what she's always wanted, was to kill Oslin and to take over Narnia. So I, I pick it up near the end of this, this first story... Lucy and Susan held their breaths, waiting for Oslin, Oslin's roar and his, spring, and his spring upon his enemies, but it never came. Four hags, grinning and leering, yet also at first hanging back and half afraid of what they had to do, had approached him. Bind him, I say, repeated the white witch. The hags made a dart at him and shrieked with triumph, when they found that he had made no resistance at all. Then others, evil dwarfs and apes, rushed in to help them. In between them, they rolled the huge lion round on his back and tied all his four paws together, shouting and cheering as if they had done something brave. Though had the lion chosen, one of those paws could have been the death of them all. But he made no noise. Even when the enemy, straining and tugging, pulled the cords so tight that they cut into his flesh, then they began to drag him towards the stone table. Stop, said the witch. Let him first be shaved. Another roar of mean laughter went up from her followers as an ogre with a pair of shears came forward and squatted down, squatted down by Oslin's head. Snip, snip, snip went the shears in masses of curling gold 
began to fall to the ground. Then the ogre stood back, and the children watching from their hiding place could see the face of Oslin looking all small and different without its mane. The enemies also saw the difference. Why, he's only a great cat after all. Is that what we were afraid of, said another? And then they start running around him calling kitty kitty and puss puss and all of that. And it, it's a the reason why I, I wanted to read that is because I think if we were handling a massive lion, we could kind of understand that if you were tying together his paws or trying to put a muzzle on his massive jaws, that the fact that he wouldn't lash out and kill you would be something. And that's exactly what happened. That's why C.S. Lewis uses that depiction. Is that Christ at any time, just like he told Peter, I can call down legions of angels and wipe you all out if I want to. But I'm not going to. Jesus is the greatest hero and the greatest king. And this is even beyond... This, the, the magnitude of what he is is beyond what the greatest lover of him ever could ever understand. It's beyond us. If you loved him more than anybody on earth, you'd still know a little, a fraction of what he is. Now, what is the false Christ compared to him? And that's where we're going to go after we leave this very brief study of who he is as he depicts himself in the last week of his life. And then go to the tribulation and see this false Christ, this antichrist, this man of lawlessness. What is he compared to the Lord, to the Christ, to Jesus of Nazareth? What is he? And we discover something. We say, well, he's nothing, of course. And and we're right. But there's also something very wrong with the world. There's something very wrong with mankind. Millions, perhaps billions of people follow the false Christ. They're doing it now, as we'll see in a passage. All throughout history, nobody has really known Jesus Christ. I shouldn't say nobody. I don't mean nobody, but a lot of people have known nothing about him. And those who do know something about him, even believers, many of them failed to worship him. To truly worship him, which means to give over your life to him. That's how you worship him. Not just holding up your hands and singing songs. You worship him by giving him your will. And for you and me, this does never have to be true. That we can see him for what he reveals. And worship him as the great God-man that he is. There's something very wrong with mankind. And we're called to witness of this great king to mankind. We must not be silent. We must reveal him through our good works, through our words, through the gospel that we have in our souls. They need it. The world needs it. And the time is coming when the world will be judged and it will be over. And we are the light of the world. So let's turn our Bibles to Matthew 21, and we'll open up in prayer and thank God for our salvation, that no matter how much or little you know of Christ, if you're a believer in him, you are saved eternally, and you get to spend all of eternity discovering who is this great king. Um, 
And so let's be thankful always. You know, you should thank God and not, you should always thank God and not wait around to feel thankful. You'll be waiting around too long. When you, when you force yourself to be thankful to God, you will find out that you're actually thankful for quite a bit. So let's be thankful in prayer and let's bow our heads. Our Father in heaven, thank you so much for our God, our King, for you, the one you have sent, your Son begotten as your Son from eternity past. There's things about Him and you that we couldn't possibly understand. But there are things that you have revealed. Your love, your mercy, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on our behalf, the greatness of who He is and what He is. The fact that He was rejected and yet He did not give up on His nation. That He will return and establish His kingdom. In the meantime, we in the church are so very blessed to have the covenant, the new covenant given to us, the spiritual parts of it, and that we can call ourselves your children and indwelt by you, saved eternally by the blood of Christ, the blood of that Lamb. The Lion of Judah has been shed for us. We, Father, are saved. And your children, reconciled, redeemed. We thank you, Father. And we... Get to spend time and eternity not trying to earn our position with you, but learning about what it is. We ask through your Spirit that we learn more. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So, Jesus is going to ask his questioners. His questioners have been trying all day to entrap him in his words. They sent little spies into his group of disciples Uh, I guess they dressed as disciples. Uh, It says they disguised themselves. I don't know how they did that, but, um, you know, it's not like Christ didn't know who they were. But they they listening to him. You know, I wonder how many of them was they said uh, the Pharisees would say, all right, go and spy out what he says. And they're like, "Okay," And they sit there listening to him. And I bet you some of those guys got saved. As spies. Like, wait a minute, I never listened to this before. And they the whole purpose of that was because he was so popular and they wanted to arrest him, they wanted to get some they wanted to trap him in something that he said so that his popularity would wane and that they could arrest him without a great uproar. And so Jesus asked them a question. After this fails, it totally backfires. He answers them so amazingly that the crowd's like, they're even more impressed with Christ. And then he asks them a question about his lineage. Well, about the Messiah's lineage. The Messiah, he says, the Christ. Whose son is he? And when he answers this question, he's going to bring out his dual nature. That he's, yes, the son of David, but he's also the Lord of David. And in an Eastern culture, you cannot be called Lord, curios, by your father. That's just not right. It's not allowed. It's not permitted. It's not proper. You ever wonder why there are so many things that are so confusing? 
I mean, we don't know the half of it, right? Keith and I, we were talking about this before class. There's all these physical laws that are flying around us, even within us. How does it all work? Good thing we don't have to, like, concentrate on it. Keep yourself breathing, for instance. Thank God you don't have to think about it. Or keep your heart pumping. Just don't forget to do that. You know, like, and all around us, everything's taken care of. The number of things that are going on around us physically perplexing. How does your mind work? Where are your car keys? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, not, I don't even know. I don't know how my mind works. Why am I so confused at times? Why am I so stupid at times? And on and on. There's a lot of confusing things. We leave them aside, don't we? We go about our lives and we leave them aside. Because how could we exist? What about the fact that Jesus Christ is two natures in one person? That he's God and he's man. Do you get that? Now You, under, you say, yeah, I, I know, he's both. Do you know how both those natures come together in one person who is infinite and eternal? What do we do with that? We glorify him for it and we leave it aside. Try and wrap your mind around that. Good luck. You'll give up on it quick. At least you should. (laughs) Nobody understands that. And that's fine. He doesn't explain it either. He just states it. And that's the way it should be. When we understand that God knows everything about you, everything, And you know little about him. If you were the most learned scholar, biblical scholar in the world, you would know little about him. And that's fine. That's the way it will always be. He knows everything about you, and you know little about him. And we need to let that truth have its desired effect on us. Right? Which is to be humble. Fearful of him. Let him do what he wills. I don't understand everything he's doing. Let him control the world. Let him control my life. Let him control history. Let him come back when he wants to. Or when the Father wants him to. Let him run things in my life. And let me not worry about tomorrow. And live today. And the joy of the fact that I'm in union with this one, this great one. Now, as Jesus says to the nation, the leadership of Israel on his final week, look at Matthew 21, 43, after he tells the parable of the wicked vine growers. Therefore, at verse 43, therefore, I say to you. The kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. I mean, that's pretty plain, isn't it? He tells this parable and they they do recognize that it is about them. And then he makes it absolutely clear. This kingdom of which I am the king is going to be taken from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. Does this mean it's taken from Israel and given to the Gentiles or given to the church? Absolutely not. He's talking about them. 
they who have rejected him. He is not going to forsake his nation and the promises that he made to her. The owner of the vineyard in the parable sent his beloved son to the vine growers and they killed him. Should they be given the vineyard? Think about it. The owner of the vineyard sends his son, in Luke's account, his beloved son, to the vine growers, and they're like, ah, it's the heir. Let's kill him, and we'll, we'll take over the vineyard. Should they be given the vineyard? Well, of course not. But then the graciousness of God will give the vineyard to the people of Israel who have believed him. And they, however, when the time comes, will go through a seven-year period in which Israel will be disciplined to the maximum, as will the other Gentile nations, the tribulational period. The first three and a half years will be a persecution full of wars. The second three and a half years will be intense, like the world has never seen. And he will not return to Israel until, bless, until they say, and notice he said this, this is to Israel, not to the church. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You will not see me again, he says in Matthew 23, until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they will. But until that time, at the end of the tribulation, Jerusalem is trodden down by the feet of Gentiles. And even though Israel does have a nation established in 1948, on May 14th, is, uh, sorry, Jerusalem is not run by Jews. There's a Christian quarter, there's a Jewish quarter, well, a third, I guess. We call it a quarter. (laughs) There's a Christian, a Muslim, and a Jewish part to it. They have no sovereignty over it. Now, we live in the times of the Gentiles. And as believers, during this time, it is for us to know and love and worship our King. We know we can know him because we have all the scripture and he indwells us. God, Jesus said, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit so that he will reveal me to you. In his prayer in John 17, he said, Father, sanctify them in the truth. Right? We have this privilege and opportunity. And good Lord Almighty, how many Christians are wasting it? doesn't mean you have to be reading your Bible every waking moment. doesn't mean that. But how many believers are actually dedicated to learning the Scripture and to learning what's in it and learning, not just for the sake of learning the Bible, but who it depicts. That's the whole point. So that we become like Him. As we worship Him and love Him, we will become like Him. And this means in every aspect of our lives. That we don't have secret aspects of our lives that are for us, And then we give other aspects of our lives to him. He is not satisfied with that, which we find out quickly enough. As he will discipline. And then, man, oh man, when he starts to truly set you free from the things that you've been holding away from him, he pursues you. (laughs) He pursues and pursues. He will not quit. He doesn't get tired. And he loves you. And when he takes hold of some things that you've been holding back from him, you can finally say, thank God I have given this over. And truly, he's not going to take it from you unless you willfully give it. And the whole demonic world, the whole demon world, is trying to convince mankind that 
These things cannot be given over to God. Or that they, be, they can be given over by force of, uh, I don't know, taking some something like a medication or taking uh, some worldly method of which the only cure for what ails us, which is sin, is Christ himself. And there's tons of lies out there about all the other ways in which we can overcome sin. But it has to be willfully given over. So their plot fails. Christ then turns around after giving, after hearing all their nonsensical and stupid, trivial questions, which they tried to trap him. And then he asks a question. Verse 41, Matthew 22. Matthew 22, 41. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they immediately answer, he's the son of David. They know this. And you can bet he's kind of stroked their pride here a little bit. They're like, oh, I know that one. We all know that one. Jeez. You know, supposed to be some famous rabbi. What an easy question. I gave you this passage yesterday, Jeremiah 23, 5. Just lovely though, right? This one that we worship has been predicted, prophesied of the whole from beginning to end. He's the seed of the woman. He's, he's the one. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. Jeremiah 23, 5. When I will rise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. Has any king in Judah ever done that? So he said to them, now quoting Psalm 110.1, he said to them, how then, how, then how does David in the Spirit call him Lord? Saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. If David calls him Lord, in the Greek kurios, how does he call him son? How is he his son? Now, it's the Lord who gets to the issue of origin. What is, really, what he said, what is the lineage of the Messiah? They say, well, he comes from David. But if he does come from David's loins and he's David's son, how does David call him Lord? The first Lord in, oh, yeah, here we go. So David's son and Lord, what does that mean? It means that there's two titles, what two titles, but really two natures, of which we know. This becomes expanded in the New Testament epistles, and it becomes quite clear that Jesus Christ is God and man in the same person forever. Two natures in one person forever. Hypostatic union, we call it. David's son and Lord means the son of David and son of God. Son of David, son of God. Again, in the East, you would never call your son Lord. So if David calls him Lord, he's clearly the son of someone far superior to David. So whose son is he? The first Lord is Yahweh, or Yavah. That's at the bottom there, Y-H-V-H. I'm taking Hebrew next year, so I'll be able to dazzle you with my Hebrew next year. 
after I forget all my Greek and then take the Hebrew. So I'm putting it off as long as I can so I can learn more Greek. But So the first Lord is Yahweh. So who's the second Lord? Because in Psalm 110, it's Adonai. And Adonai can mean master, it can mean boss, it can mean, you know, it can mean anybody who has authority. So the Lord, Yavah, I like Yavah's pronunciation, but Yehovah, no, Yehovah's wrong, <laughs> Yahweh. For some reason I don't like Yahweh, I don't know why. I mean, I like him, I'm not saying I don't like him, it's pronunciation, but anyway, if the first Lord is Yahweh, who's the second Lord? If it's Adonai, Lord, I'm, David's calling him Adonai. But that's a problem. But you see, in, in Greek, they both translate into the same word, Kyrios. In Greek, it's the Lord, the Kyrios said to my Kyrios. <clears throat> the son of David cannot be mere mortal. Because there's something else here, too. He sits at the right hand of God. That's kind of important. And not just for any reason. This is also a passage that speaks about his victory until his enemies be made a footstool. He has great enemies, and they are all going to be beneath his feet, which is an ancient way of saying completely and utterly defeated. Under his feet, like crushing the head of the serpent. So Peter, at Pentecost, our Peter, who, you know, is is around to hear this. And he's probably going there like, what is going on? All the disciples are. But after the resurrection of Christ, Peter and the disciples all come to understand. Go to Acts 2, Acts 2.34. So some would think, well, you know, who's seated at the right hand of God? Is it a spirit? You know, maybe as the Gnostics were teaching, that has been picked up by, um, by several cults, that, you know, it's not Jesus, the body, that is, you know, the bodily, physically, at the right hand of God, but the spirit of Jesus is up there, or something like that. But it wouldn't be. Because this becomes clear after his resurrection, he's physical. He says, behold my scars. Right? He eats. He says, give me something to eat. And he eats in front of them to show them. And he says, behold, look, touch me. I am flesh and bone. So in Acts 2.34, For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus, whom you crucified. I'm sure a Peter must do this on purpose. I'm going to give him credit for it. I don't think it's a mistake or some, you know, something by the Holy Spirit that kind of made him, made him say it by accident. But that he states three names here. Lord, Christ, and Jesus. Lord is deity. Son of God. Christ is Messiah. Christos, anointed one. That's Messiah. And then Jesus. 
son of David. He's the eternal son of God. He's the anointed Savior or Messiah, and he's the son of David. Until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. See, there's something gravely wrong in this world. Yeah, another thing that you know that you kind of come to see, and that you know we can't. If there is an opposition, it's not that God created sin to make it like this, but God is absolutely in control and sovereign over all things, and therefore He has purposed sin to be in this world without creating it. Um, you and I can't make moral choices. For God, unless there's something trying to stop us. And what I, what I mean by that is there has to be some pushback against doing what is right if doing what is right is what we truly purpose to do. In other words, if it just came naturally and easy for us to be sinless, and we were, well then fine, you know, fine, great. And this is actually true in the Garden of Eden, isn't it? Where Adam and the woman are perfect. They're, they're joyous. They're happy. They tend the garden. They protect the garden. They converse with God day in and day out. And everything's great. But God gives them a moral choice. This tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so God is the one who puts in there this moral decision it's an attractive tree, obviously, or Eve wouldn't have gone for it. There's also a God allows this serpent, or is the devil, in the garden to tempt her. And so there's pushback against her so-called innocence. And she's stuck with a decision to make. And we all are, every day. There's pushback. There's, there's temptation. There's evil. And there's a lot of it. And this evil hates the Lord, hates his salvation, hates him, hates everything about him. It's amazing. And then God leaves us in these bodies. <laughs> and even if you become a lover of him as a believer, and I pray that you do, you still have a body that doesn't want you to love him. And you have to, as Paul said, I buffet my body and make it my slave. You have to control it. God gave you all the power to control it, by the way. Romans 8.11 says the spirit within us can control the flesh. And it's really marvelous what God has done. And, you know, leaving us in this interim age where such birth pangs would happen that you know, depending on where it falls, it's not everywhere. Not every single believer gets a whole lot of persecution, but there are bits here and there. But all of us face trial, tribulation. All of us do. And we're stuck with decisions in which we have to say either I'm going to submit myself to my king or I'm going to act like my own king. And do what I want. The scriptures present, present Christ as the Son. God, John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Galatians 4.4, 4, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman. 
And in Hebrews 10.5, we have the son talking before he becomes into a body and says, the body you've prepared for me. The reason why I put these up is that some think that Jesus became a son at the incarnation or at his virgin birth, and that is not true. He, this title, son, or really who he is, it's more than a title, it's who he is. And so we have the father and the son is shown to us using the words of their relationship. It's an eternal relationship, though. He doesn't become the son at his birth. So what's wrong with the world continues? Go to 1 John 2, 1 John 2, 18. In the final week of his life, he knows that they have rejected him. He still offers himself to Israel. He knows that he's been rejected. That's why he teaches of himself coming back in the future. Uh, even before the cross, days before the cross, actually weeks before the cross and months, because he told, as he told his disciples, when he goes to Jerusalem, he's going to be he's going to be killed, um, and so he knows that they're not going to accept him, and so he tells as he, he's, he as he's teaching them, he's teaching us that I'm leaving and I'm coming back, and there's all kinds of stuff going to happen in between. And you're stuck in that. And I'm not going to be here physically with you. You're not going to see my face. You're not going to touch me. You're not going to hear my voice. In fact, you're never going to meet me. Isn't that bizarre? I mean, when you think about it, he could do anything he wants. Why does he do it this way? Because he knows a whole lot more than we do. So, but... I'll be in you. I'm going to give my spirit to you so that you'll know me. And my spirit will so work in you that he will testify to your very spirit that you are my children and that you are heirs. You'll be so convinced of it that you will see yourself as nothing other than my family with my name. My children, my brethren. And in that time, you can learn of me and face the opposition that's going to run through this whole age against me. And uh, I'm going to be in you. By the way, I'm going to be praying for you as I'm at the right hand of God all the time. But go get them. You know what I mean? Go and do. Go get them. So First uh, John 2.18, children, it is the last hour. Uh, what do you think John means? Do you think he's expecting the coming of Christ? By the way, they all did. Children, it is the last hour, and just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, there he is. Even now, many Antichrists have appeared. And from this, we know that it is the last hour. Uh, probably John wouldn't have imagined that the last hour would last 2,000 years and maybe another 1,000 to go. Who knows? Uh, so, uh, verse 19, they went out from us because they were not really of us. If they had been of us, this is really the false teachers, they would have remained with us, but they went out so that it would be shown that they were not of us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One. And that's at salvation, by the way. That's not a second blessing. And you all know 
I have not written to you because you don't know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. As for you, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you will also abide in the Son and in the Father. And amazingly here, I don't deny the Son. Neither do you. Neither do any Christians who are truly Christians. I understand that some Christians get afraid in public witnessing, and that doesn't mean you're not a Christian. But that's between you and God. But it, you're a Christian, and I, I would say of everybody that I know as a believer, have no problem saying that they're Christians. They do not deny who is the Son of God. And the whole world could disbelieve them. The whole world could threaten them. And they'll say, well, I can only speak the truth, that he is the Son of God. Notice what he says here. There are many antichrists. They're all over the place. It's not just the leaders. They're everywhere. And as Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians 2, the, the, uh, the working of lawlessness has already begun. Hence, Thessalonians, you are suffering greatly by the hands of your own brothers and sisters and parents and neighbors that are persecuting you because you're no longer pagans. This mystery is what he calls it. The mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Now, there's someone who's the, the, the poster child of this denial of the Son and lawlessness and sin and abomination and desolation and all that. He's, he's the top guy. He's Satan's guy. He's the false Christ. Imagine, this is all Satan can do to come up with a false Christ. It's laughable, actually. He's nothing but proud and lustful and selfish and evil. He's a murderer and a liar, just like the one who gives him power, his father, the devil. And in the midst of all that, John says to us here that, look, you don't deny the son. You have the son. And if you have the son, you have the father. <coughs> And so while there's so much stuff wrong with the world, and should we be shocked that the world is so lost? No. But during this age, the members of the church abide in the sun, and they will find themselves in trials, persecutions, and God sends them and allows them so that our endurance increases. The Antichrist denied the sun. Israel denied the son. And that's why he left. <clears throat> Here's the son. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. In actuality, this... One, I mean, it ties right in with Psalm 110, which apparently Psalm 110 was one of the psalms in the, in the uh, English church that was read. It was in their, you know, whatever their prayer book had for Christmas, was Psalm 110 for Christmas. 
And it's odd because in Psalm 110, there's nothing about the birth of Christ. There's nothing about that. You know, what you have in Psalm 110 is this Lord who puts his enemies under his feet. And then he goes out with his scepter and crushes the skulls of his enemy. And I am not being hyperbolic there. That's exactly what it says. He crushes them. Merry Christmas. But it's true, this child born into the world has come to make things right. And how is he going to make things right? Well, it could have gone one way. He presents himself to his people and they say, oh, finally, the Messiah. Enter into your glory. Nope. He must take it by force, doesn't he? When he comes again, does he come in the same way he came the first time? It's night and day. He brings it the second time. And the second time, it's prophesied, and we also see it fulfilled in the book of Revelation, that the vultures have to come and eat all the bodies. The vultures have a feast. because And he's the one to kill them all. Go to Psalm 22. So, what we must keep in mind, and I know it's hard to do both at once, is that we have two persons in one. One person. Two natures. I should, I should uh, change that persons there to nature. Oh, I have a pen. I really like this pen now. Where's my pen? So cross that off. I'm not going to try and write the word nature. Oh, maybe I am. Look at that. Oh, steady hands. What's, the pen, I didn't even know it had this. It's got this little thing on the tip that makes it sit flat on the screen so it doesn't roll over. Right? <laughs> Very excited. Two natures in one. And in these two natures, he's a suffering Savior and he's also a conquering Savior. In the vision of John, in the book of Revelation, he sees the lamb slain, and he also sees the lion of Judah. And that's both right there at the same vision. Lamb slain? How is that a lion? And yet, he's both. Because if, obviously, as we know, if he doesn't suffer, then we're not. There's, there's no people in this kingdom, not one besides him. And that is not what he wanted. It's glorious. Psalm 22, 1 and 2. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I have no rest. That's our Lord on the cross. And full on down to verse, uh, I think it's verse 20 or so. He's halfway through. I forget how many verses there are. It's all about his suffering. And then the second half of the psalm is about his resurrection. Go back to Psalm 2. So we have this suffering Savior. And just like in C.S. Lewis, of course, C.S. Lewis's story comes from the Scripture. uh, We have the fact that in the eternal decree of God, the Son was meant to be King and Savior and Judge. Um, 
And so here we see him as the conquering Savior in Psalm 2. By the way, Psalm 1 and 2 are the introduction. Both these Psalms, 1 and 2, are the introduction to the whole Psalter, to the whole Psalm. Psalm 2 says, Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. See it? The anointed? That's Messiah. Saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast their cords from us. And he who sits in the heavens laughs. Now, this would not mean at all that God is very pleased with the fact that his creation has rejected him. Jesus weeps at Jerusalem. He doesn't rejoice. So this is the laughing of a conquering general who is opposed by peons. Right? And the peons are saying to the Almighty God, we're going to cast off your sovereignty. We're going to give the fetters and the cords are the control of God over every life. You're not going to judge us. We're going to cast that away. You're not, we're not going to be accountable to you. We're going to cast that away. So that's stupid. So he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. And at the second coming, Jesus is going to stand right there. And destruction is going to come. He makes war against the armies that come against him. And then, verse 7, notice here he is. I will surely tell of the the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware is very much like the description of him in Psalm 110. Now, therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that he not, that he not become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled at any time. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. So this this psalm is obviously the conquering son, right? Who is destined to be king. He's destined to be the commander of all nations. So what is prophesied is the victory of the son. And he takes humanity upon himself through the generation of the Holy Spirit. And he becomes a man. And... This he takes on. This is something that is absolutely foreign to our minds. God takes upon himself a nature that is human. Then Jesus would allow himself to be crucified, offering up himself as our high priest, fully human. And so he's David's son. As God, he has all authority to give life and to judge. So go to back to Matthew. Look at Matthew twenty-two forty-six. So he gives them the psalm, or really asks them the question: "The Christ, whose son is he?" They quickly answer, "The son of David." 
if he's David's son, according to Psalm 110, how does David call him Lord? Look at verse 46, Matthew 22, no one was able to answer him a word. Nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. And this, this is important because prior to, they've asked him several questions trying to trap him in his words. And all he did was make them look like fools. And so he's wise. And now they're like, this strategy is not going to work. So they give up. Here's a good lesson for us. Is your enemy going to give up because you had a victory today? (laughs) No, they find another way. What are they going to do? They're going to arrest him at night. Arrest him at night when no one's looking. And so, therefore, you know, you don't have a problem with the crowd. Arrest him at night. Have a trial at night, both of which are illegal. And and then put him out there on the cross. Go convince Pilate to crucify him. And then when all the people are gathered in the square, go around as these little secret guys and tell them all to shout, crucify him, crucify him. And they do. And Jesus stands in front of them all beaten to a pulp, crown of thorns on his head, mocked, and he's silent. This is our king. He's silent. Why? Because he loves his enemy, and he wants to save his enemy. It's astounding. See, you and I have got to let that truth sink into us. And then you'll realize, and I'll realize, that it's not my background, it's not what job I have that's important or really matters. Not what gender I am. There's only two, by the way, crazy world. (laughs) Talk about God giving God the, you know, I'm not going to worship you. Um, What your economic status is what your personality is, what age you are. All of this that the world uses, that Satan uses to get us either fighting with each other or being prideful, your, how much knowledge you have, to get us prideful about things, stupid things. People get prideful about what kind of food they eat. Can you imagine such a thing? Yes, I can, because I've done it. I've done it. We've all done it. Maybe not the food thing, but there's always something. And all of that melts away, right? Because this one, we stand in awe of him. And we become little, little, little people of which he knows everything. So let's see our king in action in his final moments of the first advent not final moments sorry it's uh, at his trial uh, Matthew 26 look at 59 he's going to quote Psalm 110 again so here they are they haven't stopped now they need witnesses right they need two witnesses to agree because of course they have to follow the Mosaic Law, you know. The law that he wrote. 
which they're not doing. But now the chief priests, verse 59, now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus so that they might put him to death. They did not find any, even though many false witnesses came forward. But later on, two came forward and said, this man stated, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. How ironic and how marvelously smart is God. What did he say? I leave your house to you desolate. The disciples said, hey, look at how beautiful the temple is. It's going to be turned. Christ said it's going to be completely destroyed. The temple is the house, is the kingdom. The house is the house of David. It all ties together so beautifully. And then they finally find two witnesses that agree in the fact that, yeah, we heard him say he's going to destroy the temple. And the whole time he meant his own body. And somebody is going to destroy the temple. It ain't him. I'm able to destroy the, the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. The high priest stood up and said to him, Do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest said to him, as now he's just so frustrated, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christos, the Messiah, the Son of God. See that there's no ambiguity in their minds about who Jesus claims to be. Son of God to the Jews does not mean what Jehovah's Witnesses think it means. That he's some created, that God had a baby. It doesn't mean that. You can't be begotten of God and not be eternal God. (laughs) And so they understand this. And so Jesus says, you got that right, buddy. You have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power coming in the clouds of heaven. Right, so it, it's not a direct quote of Psalm 110, but sitting at the right hand of power, it's Psalm 110, verse 1. And this, this psalm, Psalm 110, verse 1, will be, as he claims it to himself, the means by which the Sanhedrin are finally convinced that they should kill him. I mean, they wanted to before, but this is what puts them over the top. And the high priest tore his robes and said, He has blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they answered, He deserves death. Now, is there something wrong with our world and the people in it? Because they're not done. Then they spat in his face and beat him with their fists. And others slapped him and said, And here, the most horrible of mockeries, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is the one who hit you? And you know what? He knows. But like the lamb, he's going to be silent. He wants to save the very people who are hitting them, hitting him, spitting on him, pulling his beard out. His desire is for them. Can you imagine such a thing? You know, maybe you'd show love to your enemy a little bit, if, but once they tortured you, are you still going to do it? What, you're not going to have any thought of hatred in your mind? <laughs> oh, God, all of us are going to. Because we're not him. But this is him. 
This is no fairy tale. This is the way that he thinks. And it's beautiful. If he doesn't think this way, if he lashes out at one of them, which he could, as they punch him, he could just stand up and knock. You can imagine if he hit somebody as hard as he might. And, and then there's no salvation. And see, he doesn't have just them in mind. He has you and me in mind. And because he is who he is here, which has to be the hardest thing that could ever be done. He hasn't even gone to the cross yet. It's the hardest thing that any man has ever done ever by miles. How do we not worship him? How do we not say to him, it's your will, not mine? We must. We must. Are you going to get it perfect all the time? No. But when you don't get it perfect, you must repent immediately. Confess and repent immediately and follow him. What part of your life are you holding for yourself that you're not giving to him? How is that possible? I know how. I'm just trying to be a good teacher. <laughs> and part, I guess part, part, I know, and I don't guess, but part of being a good teacher is no, I, I have not either. But we must be affected by the truth of who he is. And we have day in and day out our whole lives to learn of it. Everything in the scripture points to him. Everything. So, what is our relationship, your relationship, my relationship with the kingdom of this world and my flesh in light of him? Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for our Lord. Thank you for his sacrifice. Thank you for his incredible power and faithfulness and humility. May he affect us, Father, in the way that he should. And that through knowing him, we would know you and live glorious, prosperous lives, prosperous spiritually, and glorify you. We ask in Christ's name, amen.